Good morning. Glad some of you knew to set your clocks back. There's a few empty seats this morning, huh? Forward. I said back. You got it right. You're here. Um, good thing I got it right. I was so worried about it about 6 o'clock last night, I set all my clocks ahead. Um, last thing I want to do is be showing up right about now, right? That wouldn't be good. Um, I just want to take a minute before we start and uh, pray for Japan. Uh, if you guys have been watching the news, the destruction just is so unfathomable, even just as you look at it. Um, so I just want to take a minute and, and pray and uh, just encourage you to think through in, in what ways you might uh, be able to, to help out and respond. Father, you are the sovereign God of the universe. Nothing happens on this earth apart from your knowledge and your control. And God, we trust you. But God, in the midst of tragedies like this, we, we don't always understand what, we're, what you're doing, but we just want to say that we, we trust you and we ask you to, to do amazing things, that, you, that there would be stories and testimonies of your grace, God. I, I know that Japan is a country that has hardened itself against you in so many ways, such a, a small, small percentage have trusted in you. And Lord, if this is what it takes to draw them to yourself, to, um, to draw people, to draw them into your kingdom, Lord, um, then we just beg you to, to work in hearts. I pray that the body of Christ might respond in love and that they might just see a demonstration of your love uh, through the church um, to them. And uh, God, we pray that you will preserve many lives so they might be able to hear the gospel and know eternal life. God, just give us uh, each an understanding of how we should respond and what we should do. God, we trust you. Um, We trust the work that you're doing. In the name of Jesus, amen. So this morning, um, we're going to continue, and I just want to, just in case you guys have lost track kind of where we are, um, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, we got to Ephesians 5 as we've been working through Ephesians, and we got to this idea of of the filling of the Spirit or the filling by the Spirit that Todd talked about. And so we decided to take kind of a break for about four weeks and talk about just different aspects of the Holy Spirit's ministry. So uh, Todd talked about filling two weeks ago, and then last week Francis talked about how the Holy Spirit strengthens us to understand that, that unknowable love of Christ, that we might know it by the work of the Spirit. Um, and today uh, we're going to talk about the indwelling or the, the way the Spirit dwells with his people um, and then next week, Matt's going to talk about how we walk by the Spirit, um, which is probably the most practical of all of them. Like, this is every day. How do we walk day in, day out by the Spirit? What's the Spirit's ministry in our lives um, on that day in, day out sort of basis? And then the following week, uh, Preston Sprinkle will be back to pick up in Ephesians 5 um, and kind of continue on. And the exciting thing for me is to, to kind of look through that, and you, you've got in five weeks, five different people. And I know some of you would rather have the same person here, but I get really excited because what you end up being able to have is really kind of being able to pick the best person for the job, to look at a certain passage and to know this guy is really the one that has worked through this the most and he'll do a great job. And so I want you guys to know that we're very thoughtful with who we're trying to put up here, um, except for on weeks like this where they didn't have anybody else, so they just kind of threw... <laughs> See, it's self-deprecating humor is always the best way to go. Um, I get you guys to laugh at me. Uh, but I'm just really excited about the weeks that we have to come uh, if you guys don't know this, we, we have a sermon prep team. It's a group of people that actually work on the sermon every week. Um, and so even though I haven't been up here uh, for a while, I've been involved every single week. And so we're able to maintain a lot of consistency that way. Um, and it's really fun to be a part of. And I hope you guys see that reflected um, in, in the kind of consistency that happens from the various people that are preaching. So I'm excited where we are and I'm excited and looking forward to um, where we're headed as well. Now, where I want to start with the idea of indwelling um, is, is the place that you guys have started. I'm kind of getting pegged as like the story of God guy. Um, you know, each of us kind of has our, our little label. And because of a couple summers ago when I walked through the story of God, uh, for me, it's so important to be able to set any concept in the context, the overall context of what God's doing. Otherwise, you don't understand it correctly. And so I just want to take um, a few minutes here at the beginning and just set uh, a perspective for us of how God's dwelling with us is something that goes from the beginning to the end of the story. And just stop at a few points along the way. Um, There's two particular passages that we're going to spend our time in, in Ezekiel and in Ephesians, uh, to talk about um, a couple things in particular that God's doing. 
Now, the, the theme of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I believe the overall biblical theme would be that phrase that God often says, that I will be your God and you will be my people. That, that he wants to form a people for himself and then to dwell in the midst of them, right? That God wants to have relationship. He wants to have a particular people for himself that he has relationship with. And then out of that relationship, those people then begin to show forth what he's like. And you can use the phrase glorify him, um, show forth his attributes, look like Jesus. There's all kinds of ways we can talk about that reality, but that is what God wants to do. He wants to form a people. Um, he wants to have a, a large corporate group that he dwells in the midst of. And in, in, in doing that, he then shines forth who he is um, to the world and uh, to the principalities and powers, it says in Ephesians, that there's this way that God wants to show what he's like in a huge way through this people. So at the very beginning in creation, and kind of our theme verse we kept going back to a couple summers ago is Genesis 1, to 28, where God says, this is the way that I made man. And so for us to understand anything about ourselves, to understand what uh, our purpose is, we have to go back to the beginning of why we are created. And he says at the very beginning that we are created in his image according to his likeness. That there's a particular way that man is different than the rest of creation. The Bible tells us that all of creation declares his glory, but that man in a particular and a unique way is able to show forth God's character. That, that we can display aspects of who God is in ways that um, the rest of creation just can't. And that then he said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So it wasn't just to have... Adam and Eve and, and them display who God is, but then he creates family, right? He has them marry and says, then you, you're going to have children. So God says, in the context of family, then you're going to display who I am. And then he begins to create a people, right? Uh, multiply and begin to fill the earth. So he's saying, it's, it's this large gathering of, of these beings that I've created that is what I intend to do. And that's how it started at the beginning. That was God's good desire from the beginning. And then we see man's rebellion. And man's rebellion leads to a separation, right? An estrangement, an alienation with God. That, that, that he no longer dwells with man in the same sort of way. That God no longer has the same sort of intimacy with man because of his rebellion and his desire to go his own way. Because of our desire to go our own way. We can't just blame it on Adam. Um, but there's estrangement, there's separation that then occurs, Right? And, and that God says, that that's still my plan. And we get to Genesis chapter 12, and he says, my, my plan is still to have this people for myself, so I'm going to call this guy Abram, and I'm going to change his name, and I'm going to call him out of a land where he is, and I'm going to bring him into a completely different land, and I'm going to start forming a people for myself out of him. And that I'm going to change this people, and I'm going to make them like me. And he keeps saying over and over, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And he just keeps telling them that. And so you have Abram. Abram becomes Abraham, then he has Isaac, and then he has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and you end up having 70 of them go into Egypt, right? And then when they're delivered out of Egypt, he tells them, this is why I want to deliver you out of Egypt, so they will know that I am Yahweh, right? I, I, again, I want them to know who I am, and that's why I'm doing this for you. He brings them out to Mount Sinai, and he says, I want to be your God, and you will be my people. And he begins to explain to them what that's going to look like. And then he says, as part of that, and remember during December, we, we talked a lot about that idea of God dwelling in our midst. And we talked about the tabernacle, and we had our tabernacle up here. That God tells them, here's the way that I'm going to demonstrate to the, the watching world and demonstrate to you as well that I dwell in your midst, that I'm going to actually set up a tent in the midst of you. And my glory will be there, my spirit will be there, so that people will see that, this, that I dwell in your midst. And that became the main identifying characteristic of Israel. That Israel was the country, was the people that Yahweh dwells in their midst. That's who they were. That's what identified them. And that, that's what God just keeps saying, this is what I want to do. And so the, the tent moved around with them, right? Well, they moved around with the tents, probably a better way to say it. Wherever it went is where they had to go and they followed. They followed wherever his spirit was leading uh, through the movement of the tabernacle, the tent where God dwelled. And then he brings them into the land and he says, I want you to set up a permanent place here in Jerusalem Right in the middle of the country, in Jerusalem, I want you to make a permanent house for me. And my spirit will dwell there. And after they build the house, God's glory comes and fills that place, right? That he dwells in their midst. He wants them to see that I dwell in your midst. I, I want the world, I want the nations to see, he keeps saying over and over, that I dwell in your midst. But then you see that Israel, back at Mount Sinai, when God says, I want you to be my people, he then explained to them, this is what it looks like to be my people. 
I want you to be a holy people. I want you to be set apart. I want you to, to look differently. I want you to act differently. And instead of doing that, they just continued in their sin over and over and over. And so there comes a time where God finally says, you know what, I'm, I'm going to kick you out of the land and I'm going to remove my dwelling from your midst. And that was just so tragic for them. And in Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory leaving the temple, and it's just the most heartbreaking thing for him because that's what identified Israel as who she was, right? She was the one who Yahweh dwelled in her midst. And then you begin to see this um, both through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and a couple other places. God says, look, there's a time coming, and, and you need to look forward to this time coming where things are going to be different, and it's something we, we usually call the new covenant out of the way Jeremiah describes it. But if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, Um, The first passage I want to kind of spend a little time in, Ezekiel 36, verse 22, is another place where, and he doesn't call it here the new covenant, but it's all the same concept where he is telling Israel, this is what I am going to do for you. And we'll see this all leads us towards understanding why the Spirit of God now dwells with us as the people of God. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Look at verse 32 as well. It is not for your sake that I will act. See, the the whole section that we have here is bracketed by this one phrase that he wants to make clear to them. It is not for your sake that I am doing this. You see, Israel began to be arrogant and to think that everything was about them. And I think we need to hear that today. We need to hear, because we, we live in a society, we live in a world, we live in a culture that says that it's all about you, right? It, it's all about you as an individual. And, and this isn't just modern America. This is what it's been since Adam and Eve, that it's been all about us. And we need to hear it's not for your sake, right? God isn't doing this for our sake. It isn't a self-centered thing for us that he says instead, if you continue there in verse 22, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. This is why he's doing what he's doing. This is why he's going to do everything he's about to tell Israel that he's going to do with them. It's for the sake of his holy name. His, another way to say that is his set-apart reputation. It's for the sake of his reputation, his character, for who people know him as that he does these things. That's why he's going to do all the things that he's about to say. And see, the, I think the reason that we need to understand this is that we, some of us need to have our eyes lifted from our circumstances and to realize that it's not all about us. And whether, for some of you, you're, you're just so busy pursuing the pleasures and pursuits of life that God needs to tell you, look, it's not all about you. And you need to stop that. That it's really all about him and about his name and living the way he wants you to so that he will be glorified. But then there's others of you that you need to hear this because you're in the midst of the trials and the tribulations and the struggles of life. And you need to hear the same thing. It's not all about you. Even the trials and the struggles and the tribulation that you're going through, God is doing something for his name's sake in your life. You see, it's not just about us. God's desire is to glorify his holy name, to to lift up his reputation in the midst of the world. And now look at what he says he's going to do for them. He says, verse 23, I I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries, bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all the uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant. Lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, 
declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. He says, look, there's a time coming where I'm going to do something different. I'm going to gather you from the nations. And he says it in a few different ways, but he basically says, look, I'm going to cleanse you of all your sin. And I'm, and I'm, going, to just, I'm going to purify all of that, but then I'm going to do something different. That For Israel, there was this continued rebellion. And he says, well, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to change you on the inside, right? I will give you a new heart. And that's the similar way that Jeremiah talks about this idea that God is now going to change them so they will actually be able to obey from the inside out. He says, I will change you from the inside out. And when he puts this phrase there, he says, my spirit, I will put my spirit. Now, the the Hebrew is somewhat ambiguous. It can either be within you in the sense of like within each of you and individually or among you as a people. Now, he says clearly that I will put in each of you a new heart. But I, I think this part is talking about them corporately, that he's saying, I will have my spirit will move amongst you and in the midst of you and be among you as my people, right? One of the lessons that we have to learn as we look at something like this is that God is dealing with us as a people, not just each one of us individually, right? We have such a tendency to think, you know, it's just, it's just me and God and forget that, no, we are a people. He is forming a people and we are part of that. We are part of a family and all, all those ideas. And he says that in, in the midst of you, and, and we're going to get into Ephesians, we're going to see that this, this then is us, that he has put his spirit to dwell in the midst of us. Does he dwell within each one of us individually? Absolutely. But don't think that, okay, well, then you just add everyone together so he kind of dwells. No, there's a, a sense in which corporately we are the temple of God that he dwells in the midst of, that he is here with us. And the result of all that, he tells Israel, is that you will be my people and I will be your God. You see, that's his heart's desire is for relationship and intimacy with them. And as you continue the story forward, you get to Jesus. And in John chapter 1, it says, John describes Jesus coming, so this idea of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah look forward to a time where something's going to change, right? And then we see that that coming to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ and the way John describes it in chapter 1 of his, his gospel, verse 14. He says, Jesus came and tented among us. He tabernacled. He, the, the human body is the tent that Jesus then came and dwelt in the midst of us. You see, this is the recurring thing from the garden all the way through with Abraham, all the way through with Israel, and now with Jesus is that God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. So he says, I, I want to be here in the midst of you. I want to be here among you. I want to be here in close relationship with you. And as Jesus moves through his ministry later on in, in John, in John 14 to 16, he begins to tell his disciples, look, I'm going. I'm leaving. Because to accomplish what he said in Ezekiel, to deliver them from their uncleanness was going to require his death, right? The sacrifice for their sin or deliver them. But he, he tells them, I'm going away, and, and they don't like that idea. But he says, but I'm going to send another one. Another helper, he calls him. He says, the, the Holy Spirit, another one like me to be called alongside of you, to be there with you. And in John 14, he says, he dwells with you and he will be in you. You see, so Jesus picks up on this idea and says, look, that's what I'm accomplishing by my death is this thing of, of bringing the Holy Spirit to be able to dwell within you. And then we see in the church in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read this now, but we're going to come back to it um, it's kind of our second passage I want to spend some time thinking through. Ephesians 2, um, and, and if, you have, if, if you missed when Preston talked through this whole section, uh, I encourage you to really get that message because we're not going to be able to touch on all the details of it. But in Ephesians 2, verse 19, and Paul picks up on this idea in multiple places. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. And, and there's, a, there's a very significant aspect he's talking about here about Gentiles and Jews being brought together and the reconciliation that happens. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is working to build us into a temple, and, and we're going to come back and talk about this concept at length, but I want to finish the story first. Because this is kind of where we are, right? That, um, well, actually, I skipped Pentecost. So 
After Jesus promises the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, we see the Holy Spirit actually comes and begins to to dwell in the midst of the church. And the book of Acts shows how his ministry just leads to this growth of the church. And so then we see here in Ephesians 2, Paul says, look, who we are as the church is the dwelling place of God, that he is building us up. And and I want to talk through that in in a minute. But But the end of the story, you get to Revelation 21, and we now see there that God, as, as the new Jerusalem comes down and we see the new creation, and some of us, we think of Revelation as the end of the story. I like to call it the new beginning. Because this is, in a sense, kind of the prologue that leads up to that. And we have all of, of the new, new creation of the new heavens and the new earth and all of eternity to understand and to live out everything that God has intended for us to be. So at that new beginning, what God does is he brings um, the new Jerusalem down to symbolize that he now is dwelling and he says, very specifically, that I will now dwell with you and you will be my people and I will be your God. And that's where we're headed. And, and at this period of time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, through this whole period of time, and we're smack somewhere in there, I don't know if we're over here or over there, I hope we're over here, I hope we're getting close. Um, wherever we are, that through this period of time, the way God's presence manifests himself in the midst of his people is by his Holy Spirit who dwells in our midst. Now, I just want to read you a series of of, uh, passages that Paul says, and I just want you to kind of just meditate on these as I read them. In Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter is very important for our understanding of the Spirit, but in verse 9 he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. In verse 11, he says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, and chapter 3 and chapter 6, one of them is plural and one singular, so I'll, I'll help you see which one's which. So 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Don't you all know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all. Okay? I'll read it again without the y'all. So do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Ephesians 2 that we just read, right, that you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, Paul writes, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. You see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you, if you want to think in terms of kind of a definition, what is this whole thing about? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the act of the Holy Spirit upon everyone, and I want to be clear on that, everyone who believes that at the moment of redemption, at the moment that you believe on Jesus Christ, that you are converted, sealed, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit at that moment. And we can talk about next week walking and, and how that lives out experientially, but at the moment of conversion, every single person is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And whereby we now experience the presence of God, that we have the presence of God among us both individually and corporately. That's what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is all about. And I think you ought to see it as a, a continuity with the temple and the tabernacle of the Old Testament, that God continues to dwell in the midst of his people. Now, a couple things I'd like to, to talk about in kind of a negative sense, things I, I'd like to kind of make correct some of the ways that you think about this stuff. The first one is that sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit... Um, we begin to get very focused on ourselves as the, what we do will then manifest whether the Spirit's at work within us. So if I'm living correctly and if I've you know, done my devotions right and I'm praying, then the Holy Spirit will be there more than if I, if I wasn't doing those things. And you have to understand that theologically, and we'll talk experientially in a second, but theologically the Spirit of God always dwells within you and within us as a people. There's no way that he leaves. He doesn't leave. You have to have security and know that, that he doesn't leave. It doesn't matter if you're in sin or you're not. His dwelling among you is still there. So don't start thinking that. And I think sometimes some of the, the language that we use, um, 
Sometimes we think that if we pray right before we do something, then somehow the Holy Spirit's more there than he would have been if we hadn't prayed right before we did it. Right? And we, sometimes we just, the way that we act comes out a little bit odd if he's always there with us. Right? And, or, or the classic verse, right? Where two or three are gathered, then he's... No, he's with you when you're alone. That's not the point of that passage. But he is here with us and he's always among us. Or sometimes I hear people say, you know, Holy Spirit, come. Or Holy Spirit, show up. Now, he's here. If he is among his people. This, this is the, the temple. We are the temple. Now, the, the other thing is that the, the great thing between the, the old covenant and the new covenant is that in the old covenant, his spirit dwelt in a specific place. Whether it was in the tent that moved around or it was in Jerusalem, that his spirit dwelt in a particular place where people had to go to. And I just want to tell you, he still dwells in a particular place, but it goes everywhere with you. He still dwells in tents, your bodies. And the implication of that is that this room, this room's not, we use the term sanctuary. You guys realize the root of that is, means it's a holy place. This place is no more holy than any other place we go. You see, th- this isn't the church. This isn't the holy room. We, we are now the place. And the amazing thing is that in the Old Testament, that, that meant that people had to come to Jerusalem to see. And God did that, right? He brought the nations to see his presence. But what he's done now is he said, no, now I've sent my temple out into the nations. And that we now, as a body here in Simi Valley, we are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in our midst so that people might see, right? It's not for our sake, it's for his sake that they might know who he is, that they might know that he is Yahweh, they might, they might know his glorious character that he now dwells in our midst. So there, there isn't a special place that you have to go. This isn't a holier place than when you're at home and you're gathered. Any other place. And, and it, it also speaks against the idea of like having to go to a particular place to pray. Right? Sometimes we, you think about kind of like the mountaintop or I need to go get away. No, God is with us everywhere we are. There is no special place anymore that we have to go. The other thing I, I want to I encourage us to just continually think through is that we don't understand what it means to be a corporate body. That we really struggle with that. I struggle with that. And that he is saying that we are being built up into a group together and we don't understand what it means corporately. And it's more than just the sum of its parts. It, it's so much more than that. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. But I, I want the last thing I want to talk through um, kind of negatively is, is this idea that what do we do with the fact that Okay, I just explained, theological reality to you is that the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. But if you're like me, you've got to say, hold on, hold on, Josh. Experientially, like in my life, there's a lot of times where I don't really feel like that. And maybe for some of you, even at the moment of conversion, like I'm sure many of you at the moment that you were converted, you, you felt differently. And, th- and there was something dramatic. But then for, for some others, you probably said, you know what, I didn't feel a whole lot differently. And there's times in my life where I don't feel like he's there. How do we, how do we come to grips with the, the kind of disjunction between the experiential reality of what we feel and what we sense and the theological reality that tells us, no, he dwells with us all the time? And I just want to take a couple of minutes and, and talk through that because I think it's, it's important for us um, to better understand because I think it's that experiential reality that leads us to do things like, please come, Holy Spirit. Because we think he's not there instead of recognizing it. Now, one thing is we need to understand that we can know something, we can truly know something without necessarily sensing it, necessarily feeling it. Right? We, we live in a world where it's like, well, if, you know, we're like, we're all from Missouri, you know, show me. You got to show me, and if you don't show me, I don't really believe you. And we can truly know things without sensing it. Or, or some of us are, are good existentialists, which that's just a big word that means like we like feelings. So we, our, our relationship with God is really dictated based on kind of how we're feeling. We're feeling one way or feeling a different way. And what God wants us to know is that we can truly know that he dwells within us without having to have those types of things. Not that you won't, and you may. But the, the reality is based on truth that is not necessarily experiential. An example for me is, can you know that someone truly loves you? Do you feel it? Like, do you, 
Can you taste it? Can you smell it? Be interesting. Oh, you love me. I can smell it on you. And I, you can't see that someone loves you, at least in a direct sense, right? But we can tell that someone loves us by indirect knowledge, right? Because of the things that we see them doing shows us that what's on the inside, the thing that we can't see that's on the inside of them, we can see its effects. And that's the way that God describes the Holy Spirit. Like in, in John chapter 3, he describes it like the spirit. I mean, like the wind. The spirit's like the wind. You can see its effects, but you can't see it in particular. And so the, the way that we understand the work of the Spirit in our lives and we can have confidence that he's there and know that he's there is by looking at the effects, and not just individually, but corporately. Like when, when I, I talk to people that are struggling with their salvation, don't know if the Spirit's in them, I just want to take them back and say, okay, well, let's talk about your life. You, know, you may not be feeling him there, but let's talk about your life. How are you different? What's your, what's your sensitivity to sin now versus what it used to be? Do you have a sensitive conscience now? Like, do things bother you that didn't used to bother you before? Well, yeah, they do. Well, that's an indirect evidence. That shows you the spirits at work in your life. Let's talk through the, um, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, right? We, the, do you see those things in your life? And those aren't, you know, self-control isn't a feeling, but if you see that being manifest in your life, you can now know that the Spirit is there. Now, I want to go back and, and talk a little bit more out of Ephesians um, 2, 19 to 20. And as the sermon prep group was kind of talking through uh, how we could illustrate this, we thought the best way was actually with Legos. Um, so we, we have a, a short video, and then I, I kind of want to talk through a little bit with you uh, some implications of Legos for being the church. So are we good? Yeah. Didn't you want to clap along? It was like, it was like you wanted to... I would, but I'd miss it by... I got no rhythm. Um, now, the reason I, I love thinking about Legos is, is this idea of what Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 2, right? That in whom the whole structure, uh, Peter uses similar language in First uh, Peter chapter 2. Um, that there's all this language about a building and that we're being made into a building. Uh, Paul uses it also in First uh, Corinthians 3. Uh, there, there's this idea of us being built up into a building. And I think it just it shows us a bunch of really important things about the church, especially here out of... Um, Ephesians chapter 2, and one of them is to think through that, you know, some of you, you want the church to look like this. See how they're all the same color? They all look exactly the same, pretty much the same pieces. Um, and I'm not talking externally, but, you know, there's some of us that we only really want to hang around with people that are just like us. You know, I don't, you know, I don't want to be around those kids. Kids are kind of a pain, and, you know, they're always, you know, they're all noisy, and then the parents with the kids are kind of saying, well, you know, all those old people, they're kind of grumpy about our kids, so I don't want to be around them. And, you know, it's kind of young people are like, oh, those old people, they're all, you know, stodgy, and I don't like being around. Young people wouldn't use the word stodgy, would they? Show that I'm old. Um, yeah. But young people wouldn't want to be around the old people. Old people, and like, sometimes, and then, but the reality is when we get together, we're not actually bonded together. You see how there's just a bunch of loose pieces in there? But we kind of think that somehow because we all get together every once in a while that now this is the church. And see, God didn't want to just build a collection of pieces. He doesn't want to build a pile of people. Um, and you think of him building a temple. A temple isn't just a big pile of rocks. You know, what if they had just quarried all the rocks and just built a giant pile of them? And they shaped some specific ways and just threw them on the pile and shaped another one a specific way threw it on the pile. Everyone would look at it and just be like, what is that? You see, God is intending to build a structure by knitting us together and, and making us um, actually in relationship with one another. And the, the fun thing about it is, you know, we're all kinds of different sorts of people, and I think of this as like me. It's pretty square, kind of plain. You know, I, I was an engineer before. This somehow just seems like an engineer Lego to me, you know, the little kind of blue one. And then there's some of you that are like this. You know, it's like, wow, shiny. and fun. I don't even know which way this thing goes. Um, which is the way I, with some of you, I don't know which, which way's up with you. Um, and, you know, there's some of you that are, some of you are transparent and we can see right through you. And, but then you're all shaped differently. And, and I, I just think this is kind of a, an interesting illustration of like what the church is like, right? You bring together kind of square engineer types like me and shiny, glitzy people like some of you and transparent people. And what God says is that if, if I built the whole church out of these, be kind of boring, wouldn't it? 
If the, thanks, Paul. <laughs> Wasn't where I needed the amen, Paul. <laughs> we wanted to build the whole church out of one of these. It'd be really shiny, but would there be any foundation to it? You know, and you, you just have to, we, we begin to realize that all of us are shaped differently and that we are particularly shaped for a purpose, just like each individual Lego piece. When you put it all together, it builds this amazing thing. And if you guys have ever been to like Legoland or something, you're amazed at out of all these little blocks, what gets created. That's exactly what the church is like. That God is forming each one of us. But if we all go out on our own, and if we're all separated from one another all the time, then we're not able to actually display the picture of what God's trying to create. You see, it's why it's necessary for us to be with each other. And so in, instead of us kind of going around like, like this, we should be more like, and this is just something my son made, so I'm not sure what it is. Um, he wasn't around to ask him, so I just stole it. <laughs> it's some kind of structure that's built together, and hopefully God's building's a little more put together. But the funny thing is that you, you think about like one little piece, like, you know, let's, let's think about this little yellow piece down here, and maybe, maybe that's you. Is, is the whole thing about this little piece? Now, remember what, remember what God said in Ezekiel 36? It's not all about you, right? This is not for your sake. But is this piece important? Like if this piece was missing, we'd have a hole here, right? If this piece was missing, we'd have a hole there. That's the flaming piece. I don't know what that is. Um, we are all important pieces, but it's not all about us. It's about what he is creating us to be as he puts us all together and knits us together. And you see, this is the reason why we can't just all be on our own all the time. Because what God intends to do, what he's trying to do is he displays himself is to bring us together. And why it's so important for us to be a body and not just be a bunch of individuals, us and God, is because he displays himself. There's two ways that's incredibly important for us to be a body together. One of them is that no one of us displays the full character of God. And so if if the reality is that we as a people are supposed to be the display of the Spirit of God, display of Jesus Christ to the world in Simi Valley, we need each other because, quite frankly, I don't display the fullness of, of who God is and neither do you, but together we begin to show the fullness of who God is. And this, this works out even in particular, like in my neighborhood. Is it the group that gets together? I mean, you'd look at us and you're like, man, where did all these people come from? You've got people that are grandparents. You've got people that are parents of college students. You've got people that are just getting married. You've got some of us that you know, have elementary school kids, uh, single people, married people. You just kind of got this whole group of people um, all stuck together. And we're all so different. But that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Is that when someone comes and they see, they're like, well, first of all, what are you all doing together? But second of all, they begin to see in each one of us, you know, as, as they spend time um, with other people in the group, they begin to see the fullness of who God is because there's certain characteristics that I just don't manifest very well. And there's characteristics that you don't manifest very well. And so we need each other if it really is about God's reputation and his name. If it's just about you, you don't need us. But if it's about him, you need other people. So just the number one is the fact that we just don't manifest the fullness ourselves. The second one is that in our interrelationship with one another, actually in the, and this is why it's more than just kind of the sum of its parts, in the way that we actually interact with each other, we manifest God's character, right? Because we show through our, our relationship with one another, we're able to show things like compassion and care and love and forgiveness and long-suffering and, you know, all sorts of things that we manifest only through relationship. That if I'm off on my own, someone can't see me in the way that the church cares for one another. Right? Isn't, it, isn't that one of the things Jesus said? You, how will people know that you're my people? By your love for one another. Right? It's not your love for them that they will know, but it's your love for one another. He says that within you're going to see something. So God wants to manifest himself, and we need each other in order to be that. Now, on that idea of, of us each being an important piece, piece, I can't talk wrong, hold on, a little bit. We're each necessary, but it ultimately still isn't about us. And we get our worth 
You have to understand you are each incredibly valuable, but you're not valuable because of who you are. You're valuable because of who God makes you to be and how he uses you to display himself. And the great thing is you have to understand that when he uses you to show who he is in his greatness, it ends up being the greatest joy and pleasure for you. Right? That, cause that's what he's designed you to do. And that when we go off and we're trying to make the, make our lives all about us and all about us, that, that he just says, you're just going to be miserable off doing that. And some of you in this room know what I'm talking about. You're miserable right now because you're trying to make it all about you. And he says, no, when you make it all about him, right, when we make it all about God, we will be the most fulfilled and joy-filled. And you might suffer trials and tribulations like you've never known, but you will have joy and peace like you've never known as well, right? So he designed us so that we will be like that. Now, the funny thing is, for some of us, we feel... You guys remember in uh, like elementary school when they picked teams? I'm not the most athletic guy. Um, I was one of the last ones picked all the time. Right? If we were doing like a spelling bee or something, maybe I'd get picked. But, you know, athletic stuff, no. And it's like, no, we're not going to pick that guy. He can't catch or throw very well or whatever. And so some of us, we feel like the last person picked for the team. But here's the amazing thing is that what... Uh, what Peter tells us is that this building, the cornerstone, the, the very piece that starts the building is the building, or is, the, is the stone that the builders rejected. You see, the, the one who is the foundation stone of our whole building is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that was rejected and cast off, and he's now building an amazing temple of cast off, rejected pieces. And he pulls us all together into a building that he forms and shapes in particular for himself. So you get this ragtag bunch of cast-offs and he forms something beautiful out of it. We follow a rejected savior and we as well are rejected. Now, the fun thing for me is I look around sometimes and I don't know if you guys ever do this while we're singing, but I, sometimes I just find joy in just kind of looking around at you all and recognizing that this, this is the body that you know, just look around for a second. This, this, you guys are awkward with that. Like, literally, look around. <laughs> I, like, you see, this is, I get to see all your happy, smiling, some, most of you faces. Um, this is together, this is our family, right? And, and the great thing about being able to gather, like, with the, the kind of 15, 20 people that gather in my neighborhood is I can look them in the eye, and like, we know each other, and, and that there's this, the sense like we're, we're together and, and this is great and that we are able to display like the, the reason I have you look around is this is who we're stuck with to display Jesus Christ to Simi Valley. <laughs> right? I'm glad God's the one that does the, accomplishes the work because we're all, yeah, just not going to finish that sentence. Okay, I want to talk through four implications um, as just kind of the last thing. As we think about God dwelling in our midst, there, there's four, I think, key implications for us. Um, the first one is ownership. That in 1 Corinthians 6, he makes it clear that his dwelling within us, the implication is that he owns us. Okay, so we are no longer our own, but we are now his. So implication of dwelling is ownership. Now, we live differently when someone, when we're, handling someone else's stuff. I was thinking about it like when you go into someone else's house, don't you act differently in someone else's house than you do in your own? Now, for some of you, you're just, you know, you put your feet up and stuff, but you don't do that at home because, you know, maybe kids, your parents would get mad at you. Or it's the flip side, like, you know, I don't touch anything. I'm going to be much more careful when I'm some, at someone else's house than I am at my own. That ownership affects the way you treat things. Um, I've been asking people about how they treat a rental car. And it seems kind of evenly split. It's funny, there's, there's a whole group of you that it's like, oh, it's a rental car, you know, I just, I'll drive it off a curb, I don't care. Um, I wish we got to talk through some issues there, but, you know, it's like, well, I don't own it. And so sometimes if we don't own it, we end up kind of mistreating it. But then there's other people that actually, they treat rental cars better than their own cars. And it, it, I found it funny that people are kind of on either side of that spectrum. But what happens is that you realize that you treat something based on how much you respect the owner, right? Your respect for that owner will dictate how you actually treat the thing. So you need to recognize that you are owned by God. You were bought with a price, as Peter says, that wasn't silver or gold, but was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he now owns you. 
So shouldn't you act differently? How should you treat your life, your body, your precious hours that you have every day? We should treat differently because he owns it. Right? Doesn't that have implications for us all through life? He owns us. The second one is presence. He is with us. If he is with us, how does that change what we do? Well, don't you act differently when you're with different people? Like, uh, if you're a teenager, don't you act differently when you're with your parents than when you're not? Now, your parents kind of wish you wouldn't, but um, don't we act differently when we're around our, our, our parents or our grandparents or, you know, let's say a famous person show up? Like, it changes the way that we act, right? And I actually, I teach my kids to change the way they act depending on who they're around. Certain things are offensive to certain people and they're not offensive to other people. So I tell my kids, don't do that around those people. Right? I don't want to offend them. You know, there, there's certain words that we use in our family that we don't consider bad words, but my wife's family does. So I have to tell them, you know, don't use that word. And so I try to be careful not to use it here. So you, I, but you, there's certain things that we just change the way that we act depending on who we're around. So how much should our lives change if we recognize that the Spirit of God is with us and among us? And I mean individually, but also corporately. How ought it to change how we interact with one another? When we gather in neighborhoods with one another, the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst ought to change the way that we act towards one another. The third one is that he has made us alive. That dwelling within us, out of Romans 8, he says that he dwells within us has now made us alive. He has regenerated us, given us new birth. And what that does is it now gives us the potential to walk by the Spirit. It doesn't force us to obey, but isn't that what Ezekiel 36 was saying? That I will now give you this new heart so that you can obey my rules, he said there. That's the point, is that God is now changing us from the inside so we now have the ability to obey. You see, at times we need to appropriate, and that's what Matt, about walking by the Spirit, that's what Matt's going to talk about is how do we now take this potential that by him dwelling within us, it means that we have now been born again, we're now regenerated, we're now alive. Okay, now that we're alive, we need to start acting like live people instead of dead people like we did before. Right? Up until the point that, that he dwells within us, we're dead and so we act like we're dead. Right? And we live in darkness. But now that we've been made alive, the reality for us now is to begin to walk in this newness of life, to begin to walk in life and walk as if we are truly alive. And the last implication, which I think is so huge, is that if he dwells in our midst, we are truly secure. And, you know, the, the analogy for me is, and I think this is out of Romans 8, Paul says, you know, that by his spirit we're able to cry, Abba, Father. That the, the picture of security is of a child in the arms of their father. And the father protects them. You know, my son, if, the, if it's at night and the, the lights aren't on down the hallway, my son won't go down the hallway. Dad, come with me, because he's afraid, right? But when I go with him, it's not like anything changed down there, but because he knows I'm with him, it changes, it takes away the fear. And that's the way it should be for us. The reality of God dwelling with us should take away fear, that we should be able to walk into places we never would walk into before, because we know that he goes with us. Our dad is there with us, right? Our dad is walking hand in hand with us everywhere we go. Our dad is there with us. We are secure. And so when we face the, the trials and the struggles of life, and you know, in particular, it just seemed like the Lord laid on my heart that there are some of you that are facing disease. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's cancer or if it's something else, but I, I just, I sense that, that God wants you to know that he walks with you in that. That your dad is walking with you hand in hand through that and there's no need for you to be afraid. He will walk with you through those trials. He will walk with you as you face disease. You know, I, I think about it like, I mean, imagine you, you were kind of um, playing basketball on an airplane and all of a sudden someone said, well, let's go get avocados and you're going to jump out of the airplane <laughs> and, uh, and you put on this backpack and, and you're like, well, I don't know if this backpack is really a parachute or not. If you knew what? It's just hypothetical. Um, if you knew the person who gave it to you was a parachute instructor and they looked at you and they said, okay, we're going to jump together. Let me hold your hand. It would change everything, wouldn't it? 
That when they're with you, the one who knows is with you, it changes everything. You would actually jump out of the plane. Um, Now, if they're just someone you're playing basketball with and they just jump out without you, I probably wouldn't jump either. Um, The fact that, that God's spirit dwells in us should change and affect our security. And I want to end with where, the way Paul ends his chapter in uh, Romans 8, his chapter on the Spirit. And I just want you to hear this. Just listen. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, he dwells with us. We are secure in him and it should change the way that we live. We can walk through anything because our dad is with us. We can display Jesus Christ to the watching world of Simi Valley and around because his spirit dwells in our midst. We can do all these things because of the reality of the spirit dwelling in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for adopting us. Thank you that we can call you Abba, Daddy, that we can be your children, we can run to you, that we love you so much. Thank you so much for the reality that you dwell in our midst, that you dwell in us as a people. And God, we just are so grateful that you have chosen us and brought us out of darkness and made us alive. God, help us to live in light of it just every day, every day to live like those that you really dwell in our midst. Lord, we want to be your people. We want people to see that you are our God. Thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending another one like him to dwell in our midst, the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for his ministry in us. We are desperate for you. We love you so much. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, King, we pray. Amen.